Well, it's again great to be with you as always. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, for a good portion of this year, it's been like 15 weeks so far of this year, we've been going through the Gospel of John uh, verse by verse. Uh, we took a, a bit of a break this summer, maybe eight weeks off, uh, but today we are back and I couldn't be more excited about that. Uh, John's Gospel uh, is it's incredible. It's challenging while at the same time being encouraging. It's so complex, uh, and yet it's wonderfully simple. Because what we, what we know is that regardless of the chapter, regardless of the story that we find ourselves in in John, uh, the ultimate goal is always the same for John. John is writing to us so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. So whether it's seeing uh, Jesus as the word in chapter one or watching him turn water into wine in John chapter two, whether it's that uh, conversation with Nick at night in John chapter three or the healings uh, of, of the boy or the paralyzed man in John chapter four and John chapter five, the underlining purpose remains the same. John wants us to see Jesus for who he truly was and who he truly is. And he wants us to believe in that Jesus so that you and I might find true hope, so that you and I might find everlasting peace. Well, with that, today we find ourselves in the longest chapter of John. And in light of that, uh, we're going to be here for three weeks together, all right, Lord willing. Uh, John chapter 6 I don't know about you, but some of my uh, fondest memories growing up, or even in my life, revolve around food and water. Uh, my favorite holiday uh, growing up, still is today, is Thanksgiving. And growing up, I just love being with my family. I always go to my brother's house, typically, uh, in Atlanta or Orlando back in the day. We get together, watch football, and enjoy the never-ending buffet of food all day long, right? Or I can vividly remember uh, the best steak I ever had. It was in San Francisco. I was 19. Uh, I remember being in Japan, visiting Japan for the first time. I'd heard rumors uh, of how good the food is there. Specifically, there's this fish market there in Tokyo. I went there and tried Toro for the first time, the highest grade fatty tuna that they make. I don't even remember how much that one piece cost, uh, a lot. But I literally remember putting it in my mouth. I remember not chewing. <laughs> I remember it melting. And then I remember, unprompted, a, a t literally, seriously, a tear coming down my face uh, because I was that happy. <laughs> I'm sure many of us have had these kind of unforgettable moments, unforgettable meals. And then there are other memorable uh, experiences in my, in my life around water. Uh, I guess, first of all, that it took me a long time to even learn how to swim, so a lot of them were fearful. Uh, but I remember uh, summers as a kid being at my friend's pool all day long in upstate New York. My parents just dropped me off. We were just there all day long. I remember going to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina with my parents every year. It was such a big deal to be able to do that from New York. Or I remember being in the clearest water I've ever seen in my life. Still to this day, it was in Puerto Rico, spearfishing there with one of my best friends. A lot of memories around food and water. And the history of Israel also has two unforgettable experiences with both food and, and water. 
One, we know, is the passing of, through the Red Sea as God delivered Israel from Egypt. And then how God sustained his people for 40 years with manna, providing them with food. Food and water was and still is a big part of Israel's story and their history. And as we enter into John chapter 6 today, we're going to find ourselves entering into two occasions, two miracles actually, one involving a meal and the other one involving some water. Uh, these unforgettable experiences that we're going to dive into today that were certainly unforgettable to those who were present with Jesus at the time. John, today through our message, John is going to present Jesus as the greater Moses. That's where we're headed today. It's been two months since we've been in John chapter 5, okay? Um, I wish we could just go all the way straight through it, but uh, I think that's sometimes best. And so maybe you have to refresh your memory, or if you weren't here for that time. At the end of John chapter 5, in that chapter, we learn that all of Scripture is pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ in some way. Okay? All of it, from beginning to the end. And as chapter 5 comes to a close... Jesus says to the crowd that if, if you believe in, believed in Moses, he's specifically talking to the religious leaders, if you believed in Moses, then you would have believed in me. Because Moses wrote about me. In other words, all of you have set your hope on Moses. But hear me, Moses has set his hope on me. So like the trump card there. We know that Moses gave us the great promise of Genesis 3.15, that one is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. We know that Moses gave us the law that revealed to us our sin and our need for a savior. Moses gave us the promise in Genesis 12 that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now in John's gospel, particularly here in chapter 6, we are seeing that not only is Jesus' ministry fulfilling these promises, but also that Jesus' ministry is actually an echo of Moses and his life, his ministry, only in an even greater way. With these two miracles we're about to look into, and with Jesus' sermon that follows, Jesus is revealing himself to be the shepherd who leads us, the shepherd who feeds us, the shepherd who satisfies us that he is the sovereign Lord who walks on water and calms our hearts, and that he is the Savior who gives us bread so that we may live. Today, what John, our author, hopes for us to see and learn through these words, and therefore my hope as well, is that we would know, all of us, that we would know that spiritual hunger is universal, but satisfaction, finding satisfaction, is possible only in Jesus. Spiritual hunger is universal. In other words, everybody has it. Everybody's longing. Everybody's looking. Everybody is hungry and thirsty. But you can only find that satisfaction in the Savior. That's what today is all about. So, if you haven't done so already... Uh, I know David invited you to do that when we were reading the text, but turn with me to John 6. We're starting in verse 1 today. We find ourselves in a story that is so familiar, very familiar to many of us. Even if you don't 
consider yourself a follower of Jesus and you've just heard a couple stories about the Bible, uh, you've probably heard of this one. And that is Jesus feeding the multitude or other accounts call it uh, the feeding of the 5,000. It's a miracle that's actually found in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now here in John. And it's meant very specifically, purposefully, it's meant, it's written to echo the Exodus account, which we're going to see so clearly as we work through the text together today. So this is how it starts. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Remember, he had just healed this boy, right? And then he had healed this uh, paralyzed man near the pool. So there's a growing stir about Jesus. There's a growing fascination around this person. People are wondering, what is this guy going to do next? And it says in verse 3, So Jesus went up on the mountain, as he often did when the crowds came, and there he sat down with his disciples. And then verse 4 gives us the first explicit reference to the Exodus account. As we learn the time of this miracle, the time of this big meal that's about to take place. Jesus says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. In other words, we find ourselves in the time of year where the Jews would come together to remember how the Lord brought them out of Egypt. And how did he do that? By controlling the seas and how the Lord sustained them in the wilderness. How did he do that? By providing them with food, manna. This is the context that we find ourselves in with Jesus in the feeding of the multitude that day. We need to keep that in mind. Another point of context I think is worth mentioning is that we're looking at a crowd here who lived on and depended on daily food. In other words, these people that we're reading about, they did not see food the way that you and I do. Right? If you ask a four-year-old, for example, here today in Seoul specifically, if you ask that child, where does your food come from? They probably won't say the farm. They probably won't say plants. They'll say, it comes from the grocery store, or it comes from my fridge, or it comes from mommy, right? Or here in our city, what happens if there's a drought, a severe drought? What happens? Well, we know, prices go up, right? Or we get our oranges from places like Florida instead of China, right? Things like that shift around. Rarely in a drought here in Seoul do we think to ourselves, oh no, we might die. Right? But in Jesus' day, they did. Or the question, why do we even work? What's the purpose of work? For many of us, it's so that we can enjoy the weekend. For others of us, we work so that we can get to our next holiday, get to the next summer vacation, get to the next winter vacation. But for them, they work to live. It's survival. They work to have enough food to eat and to live each and every day. That's the world that we're entering into now. We're looking at people who are very, very, very concerned about daily food. And with that in mind, we read verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
And he said this to test him, for he, Jesus himself, knew what he was about to do. Now, Philip is really good at math, apparently. And so he gives Jesus an answer. He doesn't sense that Jesus' question is more than math, right? It's a question about Jesus' own identity, right? Jesus is really asking Philip, do you know who I am? Do you know what I'm able to do? Philip doesn't get that. And so he does the math calculation in his head and then provides Jesus with a hopeless answer. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Bottom line, it's going to cost us, Jesus, roughly two months salary to do this. Right? If you're going to take the average salary in Seoul or let's say in America, roughly you're talking about somewhere between 8 mil, 10 mil, right? $8,000, $10,000 to do this dinner. And he's like, we don't have that money. We can't do this. Well, Andrew is standing around for this, and he is thinking along in other lines. And apparently he's proactive. He's more practical, I guess. And so we learn in verses 8 through 9 that he goes throughout the crowd searching to see if anyone brought some kimbap or food supplies with them that day. And what he finds is this little boy has brought with him two barley loaves. By the way, only John's gospel mentions the word barley, okay, barley being the bread of the poor. Okay, so there's something symbolic in that as well. This is not just, it's not like good quality bread. This is the best bread. This is the bread for the poor. And the boy also has two small fish, probably pickled or dried just enough for himself to survive that day. And like Philip, Andrew's response is hopeless. He says, hey, I've been scouring around the crowd, and I found this kid over here who's got two fish sandwiches. But what in the world can we do with this? Clearly, this isn't enough food to feed this entire crowd. So here is Jesus. He's in this barren place, amongst a multitude of people, and he's about to feed them miraculously, but not with manna and quail like at the Exodus, but with bread and fish. So now the meal, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. 5,000 men are present that day, meaning... We're talking about 15,000 people at a minimum, 30,000 people maximum, with women and children included. It's a lot of people. By the way, Mark's account tells us that Jesus asked the crowd to go into groups, put yourselves into groups. The disciples are helping this, which again is a nod to the Exodus. Remember, they pass through the Red Sea, and what happens? They're divided into groups, tribes. We're seeing an echo of that here. And then, like a good shepherd does, Jesus actually, it says, sits them down in a grassy place. Lie down in green pasture, if you will, because he's about to feed them. He's about to nourish them. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he blessed the meal. It's where we get the word Eucharist, by the way. He had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So Jesus blesses the meal, gives thanks, and then look at this. John's account says, So also the fish, 
as much as they wanted. So unlike the wilderness feedings, where people were grumbling, why? We're tired of this food, number one. Number two, there's not enough of it. Unlike those people, in that account, this account, this crowd is satisfied, we're told. Jesus gave them as much as they wanted. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that before, but there's nothing better than sitting down at a good restaurant and you hear your parent say, I remember my dad would say that. I was like, he would say it often because he spoiled me. Um, but especially like my birthday, right? And they'd sit down and be like, you can get whatever you want, as much as you want, right? And even have dessert after. It's the best, right? Totally full. You just know, nothing's even come out and you know what the ending is going to be. Like full, satisfied, roll me out of here, right? So here is Jesus satisfying this crowd lavishly. He's dispensing good gifts to the hungry. He, he's giving bread to these people. But more than that, he's going to say later, I am the bread. That only I can satisfy the hunger of your hearts. They had as much as they wanted. They were full. Right? It wasn't like uh, traveling on a plane. I did that recently. And they give you a, a bag of pretzels and a Coke that you have to ration for three to four hours, right? What are they thinking? You spend like $1,500 for this ticket. And they're like, here's 12 pretzels. Enjoy the four-hour flight. Like one every 40 minutes you can have, right? It's crazy. But no, Jesus satisfies fully. And notice also here, Jesus not only satisfies fully, but he also multiplies. You know, it's true. When, when we give... It can sometimes seem like so little and so insignificant. But when we give what we have to the Lord, he can do the miraculous with it. He can multiply it. This boy who had showed up that day, he only had a couple fish sandwiches. But he freely and willingly gives what he has. And Jesus takes that and multiplies it. And notice that there are even leftovers, verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Again, unlike the wilderness feedings back in Exodus, leftovers here are able to be gathered up. That's the significance here. Um, in the account in Exodus, we are told that manna comes down from the sky Right? It's just miraculous, appearing of this, this manna, this seed, if you will. The people that day would have to collect that manna. They would actually grind it up into a powder, mix it with water typically, make it into sort of a, a dough, knead it out, bake it, and that would be their food for that day. But what's interesting about manna is that they couldn't store it for the next day. It would spoil. They were required to wait on the Lord and to trust that he would provide for them every single day. Right? The manna in the desert couldn't be saved. It couldn't be eaten later. It couldn't be stored up. And so here, this abundance of food displays for us and to them the greater grace and mercy that Jesus provides. He's saying, what I'm giving you is greater than what they received. Right? That's the message. And look at the response of the people at this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. 
then perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, <laughs> Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Right? He often does that again. Right? So the people understand this miracle to an extent. They understand this sign to be messianic. We know that Moses had prophesied about this great prophet who would come in Deuteronomy 18. And now we see they believe that fulfillment is taking place right here and now. So much so that the text tells us that they're going to make him their king, even apart from his will. We're going to drag this guy to the throne, is essentially what they're saying. But this isn't the time. It's not the place. It's not the hour. And so Jesus removes himself from the crowd, and that's the first miracle. Feeding of the 5,000. Now, as you can imagine, throughout time and history, people who are not followers of Jesus, uh, even scholars of the New Testament who don't believe that Jesus was God, many have tried to explain this miracle away. They say things like this. Well, Jesus had a secret stash of hidden food in a cave. Right? And so that's how he fed the, the masses. Because right? there's no other explanation. Or I love what this one. This is my favorite. One scholar says this, seriously, seriously said this. This must have been a miracle of sharing. Like, listen, 20,000 plus people come together to share two fish sandwiches. Like, come on, what do they do? Lick it and pass it on, right? Right, that is a miracle and it's also disgusting. <laughs> right, that's not what's taking place. Listen, when you read this passage here in the context of the whole Bible, and by the way, this is why it's so important, why it's a conviction here at Freedom Village that we read the Bible in context. That's why we go through the scriptures verse by verse because we're meant to read the Bible holistically, not isolated, right? It is clear when you do that, when you read this text in its entire context, what's happening here. What's happening here is meant to echo the Exodus account. Everything in this story is suggesting a great number of people are there. And to that crowd, the greater Moses provides, which is why the masses are all excited and stirred up at the thought of who this man appears to be. They're not excited because they got a taste of the food. They're not excited because they got to lick it and pass it on. They're excited because this has to be the prophet that was promised to us. John tells us here this is a miracle. It's a sign. It's the fourth sign in John, by the way. A sign that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah or any prophet that has gone before him. You see, only God can feed people in the wilderness like this. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. The question is, do you believe? Do you believe? Well, John then quickly moves to a second miracle. This time, it's Jesus walking on water. Now, this account appears in Matthew and Mark as well, and they add a few interesting details to their stories that I think are worth noting, and so I'll do that as we move along. But John says in verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So we're told here that the disciples are alone at sea. They are away from Jesus. 
and it is dark. Probably physically dark, but we also know that John likes to play with that theme of light versus darkness, light versus darkness all throughout his gospel. And so this could be symbolic as well, but it's likely dark. And in verse 18, we read that while they're at sea, away from Jesus, they encounter a great storm. John writes, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened, terrified. So here they are now in a terrible storm. By the way, um, it's almost impossible to anticipate storms um, at the Sea of Galilee. It's really, an, a, a, it's just an amazing place. If you ever get the chance to go, you should go, but you can go to this place, walk up to the Sea of Galilee, and it can look like glass. It's so still. Um, and then in a moment, it can become like a raging, like an ocean. It's just unbelievable. And it's actually not that big. Right? It's technically a lake. Uh, it's, it's big, but the point here is rowing for three to four miles means they're rowing and they're going nowhere. They're stuck at sea. And then Jesus comes out of nowhere, walking on the water, to which they are terrified, which makes sense, yeah? Matthew and Mark actually tell us that the disciples thought that they saw a ghost. And if you've never seen a rabbi walking on the water, that's a decent explanation. <laughs> but they soon realize it's not a ghost, it's Jesus. And I love what Mark adds to this account. I wish John said it too, but it's not his focus. But Mark says that Jesus, it says, that Jesus meant to pass by them. It's worth noting. That Jesus meant to pass by them. Amazing little phrase there. And it's significant because it's actually the same exact language that's used in Exodus when Moses wanted to see the glory of God. Remember on Mount Sinai, Moses begs God to reveal himself to him there. He goes up to the Mount Sinai, God, show me your glory. I want to see you, even a glimmer of you. Show me your glory, Moses says. And the text says, listen, that at that, God passed by him. Same language. It's also the same language we see in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah was discouraged he feels like he's at the end of himself. And at that, what does the Lord do? It tells us there that the Lord came to Elijah and passed by him to reveal himself to him. And now Jesus, no coincidence, is walking on the water here and he is revealing his transcendent majesty to the disciples. He passed by, he passed by them goes by them to reveal his identity to them. He means to pass by them. He's reassuring them of, of who he is. And then he says in verse 20, perhaps the most powerful phrase in this entire account, actually, but it's easy for us to overlook. Short phrase, verse 20, he says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. This is so, so good. Hear this. The coming of Jesus into the world means this simple but profound truth that you and I do not have to be afraid anymore. 
If you're in him, if you're in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, you can have peace. It's attainable. You can experience it forever and always. It is I, Jesus says, do not be afraid. I just love the simplicity of these words. Jesus could have said a lot of things. He could have revealed himself as the majestic creator of the universe. He could have done that, but no, instead, here in this moment at least, he's more like a parent that goes in to the bedroom when the, when the child has just had a bad dream, right? Kids had a bad dream, they're crying, and what does the parent do? They go in calmly and say what? It's okay, it's okay, I'm here, I'm here. You don't have to be afraid anymore. Someone here needs to hear that today. You don't need to be afraid anymore because of who is with you. And the Greek language behind this phrase, it is I, this is why it's so powerful, why it's so significant. The Greek language behind this phrase, it is I, is literally I am. Now we're getting this introduction. I am. The great I am is here. Don't be afraid. Which again points us to Exodus. Where not only does God reveal himself to Moses for the very first time as the I am, but if you remember There was a time when Moses was called to do a task that was so much greater than himself. Lord, I cannot do this. God, I cannot do this. you got to send somebody else. There's no way that I can make it. I can't do it. And God reassures Moses by saying what to him? It'll be okay. Why? Because I am is with you. That's what Jesus says here. Are you taking all this in today? Are you with me? What we are learning here is that Jesus is not just a successor of Moses. He's not just the greater Moses. He is God. You don't have to be afraid because Jesus, the I am, God himself, is with you. Jesus walks on water, not to pull a cool stunt, right? Hey, look what I can do, right? No, he does it to reveal his glory. Matthew and Mark adds that in that moment that Jesus actually calms the wind. We learn there as well that Peter gives a go at this as well and fails. But we're also told that the disciples were now astounded. They were amazed before, but the fear of the Lord has now struck them. They are astounded. Matthew even says that when Jesus gets into the boat that they took the time to worship him as the Son of God. You know, I think for those of us who, who grew up in the church and, and know this story so well, even as I was studying it myself and preparing for it, just to be totally honest and transparent with you, part of me wasn't really excited about this sermon because I got to the text and, you know, we're preaching verse by verse. I'm not going to skip anything. And so it's like, well, what's today? What's the, for this week? It's the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water again. Right? Everyone knows that one. Everyone's heard that. What can I add to it? Well, that's a wrong question to ask. Okay? Instead of just saying, oh, I know this story so well and I can't wait to be amazed by Jesus again. Right? Jesus walking on water, this story, it's hard for us to remain astonished, totally amazed by this, but we should be. We should be. 
When we see Jesus for who he truly is, when we listen in on who he is, who he says he was, we should be stunned. We should be amazed. We should worship. While Jesus gets in the boat, we're told the disciples bring him in the boat. (laughs) They arrive immediately at their destination. And the disciples are left wondering, we're told, who in the world is this guy who can multiply food (laughs) and calm the winds and the waves? They are wrestling now. Jesus' own disciples. They're wrestling now with the identity of Jesus. And then we're told the next day arrives. And on this day, Jesus reveals himself to be the true manna, the bread of life. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. You can imagine the scene. Right again, how many people? 15, 20, 25, 30,000 people. More boats have come because they've heard wind of what took place. This guy's out here feeding people, multiplying food, and it's as much as you can eat. It's a never-ending buffet. It's free, right? So all these people are coming, and then they're like, wait a minute, and they're doing the math. There's only one boat gone. Jesus was up on the mountain. It means Jesus is somewhere around here. His disciples, too. So these thousands of people get in these boats, put up the sail, and they're looking, right? You can imagine. I love the scene. It makes a lot of sense, actually. I'd be one of them. So would you especially in that culture, it is really hard to come by food. It's a constant concern. Where am I going to get my next meal? But now a guy has come along that can make it appear out of nowhere. You will want to find that guy and be around that guy, right? But to that, to that, Jesus knows that. And to that, Jesus is now going to build a sermon to basically say, you should not look at me like Paris Baguette. That would be the title of the sermon. I'm not Panera, right? I'm not your grocery store. There is something even more important than your physical needs. And so we read this now, that Jesus not only gives bread, but he is the bread. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you. We've talked about that phrase in the past. It means underline this, italicize this. If you have a Bible, circle those words. It means listen to what I'm about to say. It says, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He sees through their, like, welcome question. Hey, Jesus, isn't the weather great today? When did you get over here? And he's like, silence, right? (laughs) I know why you're here. You're full. Your bellies are full. That's why you're here. Says to them, I know why you're following me. You want more free food. Verse 27, listen. Then he sort of condemns them. It's the easiest way to say it. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, 
which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, how many of you here today, it's an easy question, but how many of you here today know that food perishes? We know this, right? You buy that fruit, you know, you buy, buy that like bunch of bananas, they're done in two days, right? Food spoils, food leaves. Your kids eat all your food, right? So Jesus says, don't live for that type of food. Stop. He knows what they're living for. Stop living for things that perish. Why? Because it's here today and gone tomorrow. You see, we need something more than just physical bread. We need Jesus and what he and he alone can offer. Amen? So they ask, verse 28, they hear him say this, and then they said to him, what must we do then, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They say, okay then, tell us what it is. How can we work, how can we attain this bread that you speak of? And Jesus answers them with such, such grace. Such grace, so differently than how I would have answered them. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. And here is John's purpose clause once again, all throughout the gospel. Notice it, that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Isn't it good news today to know that eternal life is not about you working for it. <laughs> Jesus has done all the work. He's paid it all. What do you need to have fullness of joy, contentment, satisfaction, eternal life? You need to believe in Jesus. This is grace. And honestly, this is so often hard even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, so hard for us to actually believe and receive because we want to attain, we want to do, we want to work, we want to achieve, we want some glory, some credit. I mean, think about it. Some of us struggle with someone paying for our meal. We can't accept that level of grace. Oh, you don't need to do that. No, 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 I got it, I got it. No, or if you do, okay, I'll take it this time, but, but I got it next time. You can't do that with salvation. Right? Jesus paid it all. We believe and we get life. The bread that endures to eternal life is freely given by Jesus, and by faith we freely receive it. But the people do not understand this. Either that or they don't like it. Maybe it's that. They don't like these words. They're an achieving people. <laughs> and so they said to him, then what sign, oh, unbelievable. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And you're listening to this and you're like, where in the world have you all been? Like 12 hours ago. You were just there. You saw the bread, you saw the fish. But no, they want more. They want more signs. They want even more miracles. But Jesus, of course, he never does. Jesus won't play their games. And so instead, he promises them more truth. <laughs> you guys want bread from heaven, huh? Okay. You want more manna? All right. I am the real manna from heaven. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, 
He's serious again. Truly, truly, underline it, circle it, highlight it, hear me. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. So he corrects them. Oh, yeah, you think it was Moses who brought No, 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 no. It was me, <laughs> the Father. And then he says, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So good. Just as the manna came down, Jesus has come down from heaven. That's what this is saying. And he gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We'll miss this in English. We often do, I think. This is not them understanding. This is not them accepting the truth. It's actually more of the opposite. They are still seeking. They are still thinking along the lines of real bread here. Physical needs. That's their focus. It's their heart. Like the lady at the well who was thinking about real water. Like Nicodemus who was thinking about physical birth. Their minds and their hearts are still set on the material, physical world. And listen, this is not just a them problem. Like, oh, we read this and shame on them. How could they? No, this is an us problem too. Jesus is saying to them, there's something more important in your life than your finances, than your physical needs, than your full bellies. It's your soul. When we come back to John next week, which we will, Jesus will address this point full on by announcing himself to be the bread of life. The one who was born in Bethlehem, also known as the house of bread, who feeds the multitude with this little bag lunch this day. He is the bread that we need for life. It's next week. But for now, as we close today, know this. Jesus is the greater Moses, the son of God, the true bread from heaven, he has come into the world, and our calling is to see him, to be captivated by him, to be astonished by him, and to believe in him. Jesus leads us. He feeds us. He satisfies us. He's the, compa he's the compassionate shepherd who provides for our needs. He's the miracle worker who can take what little we have and, and multiply it. He's the lavish, generous Lord who gives us an abundance of good gifts. He's the sovereign God, the great I am, the one who controls the seas and stills our hearts. And he is the Savior who gives eternal life to those who believe. That's our call today, church. See Jesus and by his grace, believe and have life. For apart from him, nothing fully satisfies Spiritual hunger is universal. Satisfaction is possible, but it's only in Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. Spoken like a true nerd. <laughs> Listen, church family, you can fill your life with good things. You can fill your life with great things even. The finest, the most expensive things, but nothing lasts. Nothing truly satisfies, only Jesus. So believe, amen? Let me pray for you as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together.